Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. Uh, we will uh, finish the end of 11 and then all of chapter 12. I'm going to read uh, chapter 12 verses 1 through 19. And just to get some context for um, where we are in the book of Acts. Acts chapter uh, 12. It's our practice to stand when we read God's Word. Um, and I'm going to decide the 19 verses is short enough. If you're able, let's stand as we read together. <clears throat> About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quick, quickly. And the chains fell off his hands, and the angel said to him, Dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so, and he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He didn't know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice and her inner joy, she didn't open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. And when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and didn't find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. We pray, O Holy Spirit, You are the one who inspired these very words. You are the one who was at work in Luke when he put pen to paper, so to speak. And we pray that You would be the one at work in us now. Unstop our ears, open our minds and our hearts that we would hear and understand and believe and trust uh, your word and be conformed more and more into the image of Christ. For we pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. 
So the the Blairs being in 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 Scotland sort of prompted me, reminded me. There's there's a spot, uh, the Grass Market, uh, right kind of in the heart of of Scotland. There's a monument there, a little small brick circle. Uh, in that spot, in the middle of the the 1600s, the 17th century. Uh, in about a 25-year span, more than 100 Scottish covenanters were put to death for their faith. Uh, you're perhaps more recently, you're perhaps more familiar with uh, Pastor Andrew Brunson, who's an ARP minister, uh, who, after being in Turkey for 23 years, was sent by the ARP, as I understand, um, who, after being in Turkey, I think for 23 years, was imprisoned uh, for two and then finally released. Right now, in China, um, there is the, the pastor of the Early Reign Covenant Church who has been uh, in jail for just over a year. December 9th of last year, I think, is when he was arrested. His church has been closed by the government. I think his building has been torn down. Some church buildings have been. Uh, Christians are being arrested, uh, questioned, being you know, told, recant, give up your faith. In our own country, um, that's not happening yet. That's not going on yet, but it's certainly... Uh, more and more difficult in public schools, particularly at the college level, um, to openly profess faith in Christ, uh, to talk about Jesus. Uh, in government settings, you're less and less allowed to, to even talk about Christ at Christmas time and, and the reason uh, we celebrate Christmas at all. The reality is there are... Barriers. There are obstacles to the growth of the church everywhere you look. There always have been, there are today, and there's no reason for us to expect anything different going forward. There are obstacles, there are barriers to the growth and expansion of the kingdom of God. Some of those obstacles are horizontal. They're imposed on us by the culture. They're imposed on us by people around us. They're, they're more like common belief, common agreement that this is right and Christianity is wrong and that this can be just about anything. Some of those barriers are vertical and actually come from people in authority, from those over us, particularly, for example, the government. In this passage from 11, chapter 11, verse 19 through to the end of chapter 12, we actually have both of those. We have horizontal obstacles, barriers to the growth of the church, and vertical obstacles and barriers as well. Notice there are horizontal obstacles to the growth of the church at the end of chapter 11. Stephen has been put to death. He was one of the deacons chosen back in Acts 6. And then the first martyr um, in uh, chapter 7 and 8. Uh, he's been put to death by stoning for his faith, for proclaiming Christ. 
And as you recall, there was a guy there uh, by the name of Saul who approved of that stoning and who then, uh, with permission from the Jewish leaders, started traveling around uh, to go and persecute the church, to go find Christians that have left Jerusalem, arrest them and bring them back and, and bring them up on charges there. And so as a result of that persecution, people scattered. People left Jerusalem. And we're told in verse 19 of chapter 11 um, that a fair number of them went to Antioch. Antioch was a a large, significant Roman um, city. It had a a large uh, Jewish population as well. But as they're going, as these believers are running away from Jerusalem, are leaving this persecution and going someplace else, they're talking about Jesus as they go. Look at verse 19. They're scattered and yet at the end of the verse, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. Now, you and I have already read of Peter's vision of Cornelius, the Gentile Roman centurion who's been converted, who's received the Holy Spirit, who's been welcomed into the same church that that the apostles, that the same believers uh, everywhere are in. And so we know that Gentiles have already heard the gospel, that Gentiles are, are being converted, that Gentiles are receiving the Holy Spirit, and yet... You'll notice that these folks are scattering. These these believers with a Jewish background are still only talking to other Jews. There's a that racial ethnic divide between Jew and Gentile that is thousands of years old, that hundreds of years old at this point. Doesn't go away easily. And so the Jews are. Yes, they're proclaiming the gospel. Yes, they're proclaiming the word, but they're only doing so with other Jews. They still have in their minds that if I, if I interact with a Gentile, if I have a meal with a Gentile, if I eat food at a Gentile's table, if I touch a Gentile, if I shake hands with a Gentile, I become unclean. And so those, those rules, those laws, those barriers, those obstacles are still at work in some of these people. But not all of them, because in verse 20, you find out there are people from from other parts of the Mediterranean who, quite honestly, have have experienced interaction with Gentiles in the past. And so for them, taking the gospel to the Gentiles is, is really not a foreign concept. And so in verse 20, people from Cyprus and Cyrene who are coming to Antioch and speaking with the Hellenists, the Greeks, the Gentiles... Also preaching the Lord Jesus. So you see this picture then of this racial ethnic barrier that's supposed to have been destroyed by the gospel, that's supposed to have gone away already. It still stands. Some will only talk with Jews. Others are taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And notice we're told in verse 21 that the gospel... That the church grew. A great number who believed turned to the Lord. But why is that? 
Why did the church grow? Why did a great number who believed turn to the Lord? There are two reasons given to us in this passage. The first is the saints are engaged in evangelism. In verses 19 and in 20, we're told that they're talking about Jesus as they go. Verse 19 ends with speaking the word. Verse 20, preaching the Lord Jesus. And so these saints, as they're being scattered, wherever they go, whoever they come in contact with, they're talking about Jesus. They're proclaiming Jesus. They're speaking the word. They're, they're talking about the gospel. I've said it before probably use it as an illustration in a sermon before. I'll use it again. There's a, a saying that has wrongly, it appears, been attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Uh, the saying goes, preach the gospel every day. If necessary, use words. Okay, I, I get it. But if you're not using words, it isn't the gospel. The gospel is a verbal message that can only be communicated verbally. It can only be proclaimed through speech. You can't just live it and expect people to recognize the gospel in your life. So these folks are, they're obeying the Great Commission. Again, the... the the imperative, the command in the Great Commission is make disciples. It's not go. The word go is a participle. It means as you go, as you're doing what you do, make disciples, proclaim the gospel of Christ. And so one of the reasons the church is growing in Antioch is because the saints are engaged in evangelism. But people will not be converted by your eloquence. People will not be converted by your clarity. People will not be converted by your confidence. People will not be converted because you have the answers. Because notice there's something else going on in this passage. Look at verse 21. The hand of the Lord was with them. Without the sovereign work of God changing the hearts of rebellious people, our clarity, our eloquence, our confidence, our evangelism is powerless. And so these folks are, are going around and, and proclaiming the gospel. Uh, they're speaking about Jesus both to Jews and to Gentiles and yet... The power comes not from their words, but from the hand of the Lord was with them. God's at work. God's pouring out His grace on the listeners and the speakers that they might hear and understand and respond in faith to Christ. Salvation is all of grace. Just, just go read... A, this seems to be a pattern now. You get a Sunday afternoon reading assignment every Sunday morning, it seems. Go read Ephesians 2. Verse 8 in Ephesians 2 tells us that even faith is a gift from God. And so God's at work. 
The church grows because the saints are engaged in evangelism, but because the hand of the Lord was with them. God's breaking down barriers between Jew and Gentile. God's breaking down barriers between hard hearts and and deaf ears to hear and understand and embrace Christ as He's proclaimed to them. In fact, there's, there's actually more evidence of these, these horizontal barriers, obstacles being broken down because what happens is when Jerusalem, when the church in Jerusalem gets word that the church in Antioch is growing, they send Barnabas. They could have sent somebody to make sure that the things they were learning were true. They could have sent somebody with sort of this doubt sort of idea. I don't know about that church in Antioch. We better send somebody with some legal understanding who's really going to go and make sure these people really are believers. They send Barnabas. That's not even his real name. It's a nickname. The apostles gave him a nickname, son of encouragement. Why? Because evidently he's an encourager. His life has reflected a life of encouragement and caring for others. And so Barnabas is there to encourage the saints, to to encourage the church there. In fact, then he he left. And you, you can read all this at the end of chapter 19. We didn't read this part. Then he left and went and found Saul in Tarsus and brought him back. And they spent a year there teaching Equipping the saints there in Antioch. You remember Saul, right? I mean, he, he, had, he had a license from the chief priest to arrest and possibly kill Christians not that long ago. And now he's the one that Barnabas wants to teach and instruct this church. The obstacles, those horizontal barriers to the growth of the church are being broken down. They've always existed, but the gospel overcomes them. Maybe they're racial or ethnic. Maybe they're those differences that make people create a second water fountain just so that someone else who has a different skin color can drink from that water fountain because we can't share. That's exactly the kind of horizontal barrier we're talking about. That's exactly the the racial ethnic tension between Jew and Gentile. Maybe it's people groups with deep-seated, deep-rooted anger and frustration with each other that are never allowed to be in the same place at the same time. Maybe it's, maybe it's matters of, of gender and sexuality that the culture embraces that are contrary to Scripture. Or backgrounds or financial differences or nationality or any number of other horizontal barriers. Barriers that we set up between one another to try to prevent the growth of the Gospel. In the eyes of an evangelist, there are only two types of people. Believer and unbeliever. 
That's the only difference. That's the only distinction to make between people. These barriers are being overcome by the gospel. Some of the barriers, however, are vertical. We read in in chapter 12, the government itself is opposed to the church. So much so that Herod would actually put James to death. James, the brother of John. This is not... This is not the author of the book of James. That's a different James. That's James, Jesus' brother. This is one of the inner three, right? You read the Gospels, and there's like the twelve. They're the disciples, which is some large group. There's the twelve. And then every now and then, rather frequently, Peter, James, and John get privileges that the other nine don't get. He was a witness to the transfiguration. The other nine were not. He's one of the the inner ring. You know, the the, the Grateful Dead, the original Grateful Dead, many of them are dead. Now, there's, there's four left. They call themselves the core four. And then they've brought in other people, too, to join the band. This is the inner three. I mean, it doesn't get any better than Peter, James, and John. And Herod puts him to death. Which, of course, then his approval ratings went up. The Jews reacted, hey, we like this guy. He's a a Roman ruler over the Jews. They've never liked any Roman rulers except the one that shares a common enemy with them. And so Herod, when he begins to to systematically, it appears, put to death, and it looks like maybe he's targeting the inner ring. Maybe he's targeting those three. James, put to death. Approval ratings go up. I like this. Grab Peter, throw him in prison. We'll kill him next. We have to, um, I guess, wonder what the impact of James's death was on the believers, on the, the saints there, on the apostles. We, we don't know their reaction. We don't know what that led to. We know how the Jews reacted. They reacted with joy and gratitude and celebrated Herod for his work. There's a question that I would hope as you, as you were reading through this, that I would hope would run through your mind at some point in reading this passage. See, we've just said that God is sovereign in salvation. That the reason people are being converted at the end of chapter 11 in Antioch is because God is sovereign. The hand of the Lord is with them. Well, if God is sovereign, why is James dead? That's the way you and I ought to approach this passage. Because that's the way we would ask the question about our own lives. If God is sovereign, why am I sick? 
If God is sovereign, why do I have this disease? If God is sovereign, why did so-and-so die so young? If God is sovereign, wouldn't He have prevented that? Right? Our lives tell us that James, who's probably early 30s, that James's death just might raise questions about whether or not God knows what's going on in this world. And if He knows, does He care? And if He cares, is there nothing He can do about it? Because James is dead, Peter, on the other hand, is arrested and ultimately freed. The same God who saved people at the end of 11, who let Herod put, put James to death at the beginning of 12, Freeze Peter. You and I have to be wondering, oh wait, how does that work? Why James and not Peter? Or why Peter arrested and not John or one of the others? Why is James allowed to die and yet Peter is set free? We frequently let our events, our experiences evaluate God in His Word. We will say, well, wait, if this is happening in my life, then what I read about God can't be true. Then what I read in His Word can't be true. We should read our experiences through His Word, not the other way around. James's death doesn't prove that God is unloving or weak. There's a, um, there's a scene in uh, Chronicles of Narnia, A Horse and His Boy. Um, if, you've, if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, Horse and His Boy probably is the book that gets uh, the least attention and unfairly, I might add. Um, there's, a, there's a scene there as uh, Shasta and Erebus are riding their horses towards Narnia. Uh, they get to this walled city and, and uh, Erebus has, has been wounded by a lion. Um, actually, what they thought was a whole bunch of lions uh, were, were chasing them. It turned out to be just the one. It was, it was Aslan all along. And after they meet Aslan, Shasta begins to ask questions uh, of Aslan. And then at one point he says, Then it was you who wounded Erebus. But why? And Aslan responded, Child, I'm telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. So when we come to Scripture and we see what appears to be difficult conflicts like the death of James and yet the freedom of Peter, we're left being reminded, I guess we're not always told everybody's story. We're told our story. And we don't get the answer to why God would, would take James and free Peter. He doesn't always tell the stories we want to hear or think we need to hear. God in His infinite wisdom, in His sovereignty, took James and yet saved Peter. It was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The timing is, is under God's control because it was 
at the Passover, they couldn't have a trial. At least not, and, and not one that would keep the Jews happy. And so they had to wait until Passover was over to bring uh, Peter to trial. And it was in that time, in that gap, that Peter was freed. I want you to notice though, how the church, look at verse 5, how did the church respond to the news that Peter was arrested? They prayed. You and I treat prayer like a desperate measure. You know, desperate times call for desperate measures. When all else fails, pray. How about before we try anything else, pray? What if we did it backwards? What if we reversed it? The saints, they hear that James is dead. They hear that Peter's arrested. And so what do they do? They pray. Prayer doesn't say, I doubt God's sovereignty. Prayer says, I'm completely confident in it. Every time we pray, we admit that we are weak and helpless. And so God in His sovereignty freed Peter. I hope as you read, um, as we read verses 6 through 10 of chapter 12, I hope all the, um, all the strange things that happened stood out to you. Look, verse 6. Peter's sleeping between two soldiers. He's bound with chains to these soldiers next to him. And there are sentries at the door guarding the prison. An angel comes and stands there and there's light in the cell. Why doesn't that wake up the soldiers? Because God is sovereign. And his chains fall off. Why doesn't that noise wake up the soldiers? Because God is sovereign. Um, he struck Peter on the side and woke him up. You strike me on the side and wake me up in the middle of the night? It doesn't happen quietly. Why didn't the soldiers wake up? Because God is in control. God is sovereign. There are all sorts of places where, if this were a movie, if this were some heist movie, and the, the main character's in jail, and his buddies have gotten together and put together a plan to come free him from jail. This is the part where you, as the watcher, your palms get sweaty because there are way too many things going wrong. And yet he walks through multiple doors, past centuries, through a gate that's locked, that suddenly is open. You get this great picture of God's sovereign Control of all things. These soldiers didn't wake up because God didn't want them to. Because God prevented them from seeing the light and hearing the chains fall off and, and hearing Peter when he said, Whoa, what, 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 what are you waking me up for? You want more evidence that God's kingdom can't lose? You want more evidence of God's sovereign rule over His creation? The end of chapter 12, we didn't read this, but the, at the end of chapter 12, Herod begins to speak. And the people say, the voice of a God. And Herod never said, whoa, hold on, time out. I'm just a man. There's someone greater than I that you ought to glorify. 
Instead, he said, yep, that's me. He claimed the glory. He took the credit. And notice what happens. Verse 23 of chapter 12. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he didn't give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. And with that, Herod's kingdom came to an end. What of God's kingdom? The very next verse. The word of God increased. And not added to, multiplied. That's steeper incline. If you're, if you're trying to draw the graph of the growth of the church, multiplied grows faster than added. Herod's kingdom comes to a sudden, prompt, immediate, complete end. And the very next sentence says, but God's kingdom doesn't. In fact, it can't. There is no obstacle horizontally created or vertically created, horizontally imposed or vertically imposed that can snuff out the kingdom of God. Let me make just a couple of applications from this passage first. Evangelism is necessary for church growth. If you want to grow the kingdom, you and I absolutely must be talking with unbelievers about Jesus. That is the way to reach the lost for Christ. To reach those who've never trusted in Christ for their salvation. The way of doing it, of, of gathering those people into the church, is by proclaiming the gospel with those who don't believe it. You and I need to be engaged in evangelism. That's the, the means appointed by God to grow His kingdom. Second, right on the heels of that, you can't change people. Only the Holy Spirit can change people. So you pray for the Holy Spirit to work. You proclaim Jesus and you trust Him to do what He will with that gospel proclamation. A third sort of tangent application. Uh, there's a picture in this passage of the connectedness of the church. There's no concept in the Bible of a church that is solely and totally and completely independent of every other church in the universe. This, this will become clearer in Acts 15. But when the church in Antioch began to grow, the church in Jerusalem got excited and sent somebody. And when Agabus the prophet prophesied a famine coming, the church in Antioch took up a collection for the church in Jerusalem. There's no such thing as an independent congregation in the Bible that has absolutely no connection to anyone uh, uh, anywhere, anywhere else in the world. This is sort of foundational to being Presbyterian. We're connectional because the church, the New Testament church, is connectional. And then fourth, are you a subject of the King of the universe? Are you trusting in Christ alone for your salvation? Are you, or are you seeking your own 
kingdom? Are you ruled by His Word or by your own desires? Run to Christ. Run to the cross. There find forgiveness. There be welcomed into the very kingdom of God. Ruled by His Word and by His Spirit. And welcomed into the church. Let's pray.